Open Globe Talk is a podcast series for aspiring ophthalmologists and trainees interested in obtaining education in global ophthalmology. Be part of this unique setup as we interview ophthalmologists around the globe virtually and get to create equity in service, innovation, and medical education. In this episode of Open Globe Talk, we sit down to talk with Dr. Alessandro Jamal, who is a glaucoma specialist from Brazil and a current research scientist at the Duke University. Dr. Jamal completed his medical school at UniUbi in Brazil and his ophthalmology residency at UFTM. He then completed a glaucoma fellowship at Unicampi in Sao Paulo and a research glaucoma fellowship at the Duke University in conjunction with his PhD through Unicampi in Sao Paulo. Dr. Jamal has helped organize and create the Duke Ophthalmic Registry, a foundation for several exciting artificial intelligence studies, and through which he has worked on and published several high-impact research articles. Not only has Dr. Jamal excelled in academia, he is also a compassionate global ophthalmologist. He has worked as a glaucoma surgeon in countries such as Nigeria, Kenya, Brazil, and Haiti. With his incredible insight today, we will come to learn of a new perspective on eye care in Latin America. So without further ado, I just want to welcome Dr. Jamal to the show. Hi, Rizzo. Hi, everyone. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for the introduction. Good to be here. Awesome. So my first question with every guest is, what made you decide on ophthalmology and what is the medical system like in Brazil? Well, that's a very good question. Um, well, regarding my residency, I, I, I never really stopped to think about it until recently. When I had to decide uh, which path to choose for residency, I think it was a very natural decision at the time. I think it had to do to the fact that since I was eight, nine years old, I used to see my ophthalmologist every year. I myself, I had myopia and my intraocular pressure was on the higher side. So I had yearly follow-ups with him. He's a great doctor. He still practices. And I have always been a bit tech savvy and always wanted to see how all those devices he had, uh, how they worked. And I was curious about it. So I think this was always in the back of my mind. For uh, the medical education in Brazil, it, it is a bit different from the U.S. So after we finish high school, when we are around 18, we sit a test to each university we want to go to, sort of one SAT for each university we want to apply for. So you then choose the grad course you want. So in my case, I was a little earlier. I was 17 and I decided to go for medicine at that time. The university takes six years in total. And as I went through medical school and got closer to ophthalmology, that curiosity that I had turned more into a realization of how powerful this specialty is in changing a patient's quality of life, sometimes even with minimal intervention. And also we don't have optometrists in Brazil. So the ophthalmologist, the medical doctor, does all the testing and treatment of eye diseases there from the basic refraction to the most complicated surgeries. Very interesting that they don't have an optometrist. Did you ever feel like there's a high need for ophthalmologists in Brazil then? I don't think there's a high need. There are plenty of ophthalmologists there. The problem is the distribution. So in the most remote areas like the Amazon forest, the Northern states, you don't have as many ophthalmologists as you have in Sao Paulo, where the best universities are and most of the population is now. 
And you mentioned the Amazon forest. So I'm curious, how did you get started with your work at the Amazon treating indigenous populations? Uh, Yeah, that's an interesting story. So I I was at the end of my residency and there was an attending that was part of this nonprofit organization called Expedicionarios da Saúde, or Brazilian Health Expeditionary. It is a group of doctors, nurses, and logistic volunteers that have an expedition to different areas of the Amazon forest once every three to four months. So they have been providing this type of care in these geographically isolated populations since 2004. They have done over 9,000 surgeries in the Brazilian Amazon forest area. So this is a very impactful thing they do. By, by doing that, we avoid this the relocation of patients and their families to the cities, to the urban centers, which can be costly and sometimes very traumatic to, to this population. For those who, who are interested, they have beautiful stories and photos of the region on their website. I'll send a link to you, Rizzo. He always told me about the trips and how impactful they were the community and I was fascinated about them and it happened that he got sick a few days before the trip and they couldn't find a replacement and he called me in and asked if I wanted to go and cover for him and I said yes of course and I joined the team and participated in three more expeditions after that and my first trip was a triage trip we went from tribe to tribe that that given area that they had chosen uh, for the expedition that time and we went from tribe to tribe by helicopter And we evaluated all adults and all children in the region for cataract, pterygium, trachoma. And there was also a general surgeon with us who evaluated for hernia or other diseases that we thought that we could help. It's basically a surgical expedition. So we're looking for a disease that we could approach uh, surgically with uh, medium complex surgeries. And at the same time, while we're doing this triage, there's a field hospital is being built in one area closer to those tribes. And the patients that we identified with of those diseases we could treat, they are flown there for treatment. How were the tribes like? Were they all the same or did each tribe have their own different culture and dialect? Yeah, that's a great question. So the Amazon forest is uh, enormous. Uh, You can cover it all in one expedition. And inside the forest, there are about 400 different tribes in total. They all speak different languages. Some of them have had very little contact with outsiders. And at each expedition, the organization chooses one area and one population that's similar in some ways to organize the trip. Oh, very cool. And so how do you communicate usually with these individuals? Uh, we try to learn some words that we can do. Uh, we uh, look up, look down, and things like this when we're doing the exam. But we have an interpreter there. So it's usually a community worker that, so the government chooses some members of the tribe to go and do some training in the cities, in the community, some basic training. And they learn Portuguese and they also learn some health uh, information about treatment and things like this. So it can help the tribe and they help us to be able to interpret there. And I think that functions really well, given that they are more culturally sensitive to the needs of the tribe. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So uh, I know you shared a little bit about your very interesting initiation with these tribes. It's not as if you can just go in and, you know, be part of, of their group and treat them. So can you share a little bit about your experience and I guess some of the cultural sensitivities that you would expect people to, to keep in mind when they're coming in? Yeah, that, that's very important. Uh, 
as I said, like the tribes can be very different from each other. So for example, the first trip was with the Yanomami and the Yanomami are known as the warriors of the forest. They were very hard to approach. So the organization had to negotiate with them for over three years, I think. My third trip was with the Hupda, who were more collectors and the Tucanos. So they all have different costumes and ways to be approached. Sometimes, as I said, it can involve months of preparation to do one expedition. What they do first, that first uh, the teams are sent with the community health workers to contact the chiefs of the tribes to offer the trip. And that is the time that you need to get their approval and their confidence to go there. And after many years, the organization is very well known in the area and they, they're seeing with very good eyes for all which they have done there. And this has been facilitated over the years for a part of the organization. But as a doctor or a healthcare worker, you have to take time and understand those different cultures barriers for every patient and then understand their needs in another dialect. And so that you can allow you to examine them and agree to do the surgery if they actually need one. Very important. And now that you've kind of gone and seen these communities and treated them, what are some unmet needs do you think that are still in progress of being addressed? Oh, the, uh, unfortunately, there are many. Well, they are geographically isolated. So sometimes there are days by boat or hours by plane, very difficult access. So if they need tertiary care, the closest hospital is usually very far. Uh, Brazil has a public health system, so everything uh, is paid by the government. There is a parallel private sector, but for the public system, there are often gaps in the budget to cover all the expenses to do that. For example, cataract surgery, which is a perfect example of that, although it can be done very quickly in 20 minutes, for example, it needs very expensive devices, trained ophthalmologists, intraocular lenses. So this is very expensive for a public health system, if you add up on all this, the cost for transportation and relocation. And contrary to what people believe, how compliant is the indigenous population with respect to the treatments and preventive methods you introduce to them? Well, I was surprised about that first time I went there, but they're actually very good and very receptive. They're extremely good with vaccination. There is a public vaccination policy that has been around for years that's very well accepted. This reduced mortality greatly among indigenous in the Amazon. Uh, most tribes usually have those indigenous healthcare community workers that receive some training in the city and they live in the tribe and then they're able to identify more urgent needs and communicate via radio with the authorities if they need help. There are also field doctors and nurses that travel around the tribes to provide some care and do health checks. Very surprising indeed. And it's good on them for, for following through and taking the resources they're given with, with value, with face value. So that's really good. Now, going to the ground, when you start setting up for the base camp and you know, you've shown me some of the pictures for, for how it's set up, describe to our listeners how the surgery is like in these remote areas and what are some strengths to the training received in these settings as well as the hardships. I think the only way to fully experience that is being there in the forest. It's an amazing experience. I think those experiences force you to go back to the simplest and most important things we learn during our medical training, such as the importance of trust in the doctor, the doctor-patient relationship, 
the importance to care and give someone the best attention and care possible, even in the most remote place. So you are out of the hospital setting as we know it, uh, which might be a little uncomfortable at first for some, but we are in their home and we're invited to be there which is uh, quite an experience. The gratitude you see there is incomparable. The day after when we remove the patch from their eyes for after cataract surgery, most of them start crying and they make us cry too because they really couldn't believe it was possible to see again. There are some other things that we try not to change in their lives. So when you see the pre-op room and the post-op room, they don't have hospital beds, they have hammocks because they are used to sleep on hammocks in the tribe. So we try to make it as similar to where they are used to be as possible. And of course, there's all the concern for any kind of infection or anything that we can trace back because going back there is as hard as going there in the first place. So we have to do the most perfect job we can do. What are some topics of indigenous eye care that are needed to be studied more deeply? And I feel like you would be the best person to address this as you've been in academia for so many years now. Well, I've seen a lot and I always come back with a lot of ideas. I think it's hard to generalize because different indigenous populations, they have different needs, not only culturally, but also geographically where they are, if they're closer to the city or not. And depending on the level of, of contact they had with outsiders. There are also some diseases that are more prevalent there. So for example, Africa and the Amazon, they have very high rates of trachoma, which is a very sad cause of blindness that can be completely prevented. Antibiotics, for example, and it's still very prevalent there. Cataract surgery is also necessary to allow them to be able to keep hunting and foraging and be able to help their community longer. There are also simple interventions, for example, like eyeglasses for presbyopia, help with all the art and handcrafts they can do. There's a group taking portable cameras to take fundus photos and using algorithms to diagnose glaucoma or other eye diseases, for example. But I think the most important thing that we still need there, at least I can say more about the forest, is that there are not many studies of the prevalence of eye disease in the indigenous population. So all the literature on this is very sparse and there is a need for better planning for health strategies there. So we might be spending too much money where we don't need. And if we channel some of this budget to these areas, we can do a lot of change. Yeah. How has indigenous eye care transformed since eye care services have reached these regions? I know you touched upon it a little bit, but in summary, how do you think that these interventions have transformed their care? Yeah, that's a very good question. So are we doing any good by going there? And what the foundation has done is that we have seen a long lasting impact in the community. So for example, we estimate that in each expedition that takes about 10 days, we're able to treat all the population with cataract for a five-year span in that region, that small region inside the big Amazon. This increases their life expectancy and population and allow to keep the forest alive and protected. And with their high compliance rate, I'm sure that they follow through with the medications and I'm, I'm imagining their complication rates are, are lower. Yeah, we keep track of them. So for example, we don't do any surgery that can have a very high complication rate or infection rate, like larger surgeries. So most of the surgeries there our pterygian surgery is completely external. Cataract surgery, there is a, a normal, a huge 
control for everything in there. The photos can see in the in the website later. You'll see the igloos that we have. They are really made for that to to prevent every kind of infection. And general surgeries, it's usually hernia, which also has a very low uh, infection rate and complication rate. So we take care of this. And of course, we identified those cases that need tertiary care in a bigger hospital setting, and then they are referred to those centers later. So pivoting off to the U.S. after completing your dual PhD degree. How have you carved your career as a global ophthalmologist? I know that you are also part of building a registry in Brazil as well, which is really cool. And I was kind of curious, how does one continue bridging that clinical exposure? Uh, that's a very good question. That's uh, most of what I have done is uh, related to volunteer work in a global scale. So when I was in Brazil, I was more active in organizing the mission trips of the foundation. And then COVID made it very difficult to travel. Uh, before uh, COVID, these expeditions were happening every three, four months. So when I came to the U.S. as part of my PhD, I had some trips with the organization that had to be canceled, and I thought that I still need to give back a little and try to help. So there, at the time, they were setting uh, a multi-center study to follow glaucoma in Brazil. And I've joined uh, the, the Cure Glaucoma Foundation to do uh, an online course for ophthalmologists in Kenya and Nigeria on how to do glaucoma tube shunts. And soon we're going to do a field trip there too. So I, I think when you leave a country that was needing a lot, like in Brazil, and you come to the US, you see a lot of difference. You sort of like feel that you need to give back. I think that's a really good point that you bring up where you go from one healthcare system to another, where they are in stark contrast to, to each other. How, how does, how does one from a country where you have so many skills to treating uh, high needs communities, transfer that and continue it. And I think you've done that very, very well, even with COVID going on by being in association with these research studies. And in, in your opinion, what do you think is, is really important coming out of COVID? You know, the world being so isolated from one another, what are some things that you think would be important to keep in mind as we go into these global experiences and maybe want to get more out of our experiences? I think we have to have this sense of community in a global scale that we really need to help each other. And that, that means uh, outside of, of course, in in eye care, but like uh, making vaccines available everywhere because we know that something that happens in one country have very lasting impacts to us here. So I think that's I think that's a lesson that we learned from this. This global scale is not as big as we thought before. Absolutely, and this is a fun question to ask. Um, I'm always curious. You're a native from Brazil, which is a very beautiful country, has so many cultures, is home to the Amazonian forest, and you've touched on the indigenous tribes and how they live. How is Brazil overall uh, as a country, and how is the culture like? What are some ethnic foods that, that you would definitely suggest someone wanting to come to the country? Well, if we start with food, I'll tell you Everything is good. <laughs> well, I, I have to say the best is coffee and fresh fruit and produce. Fruit tastes different there. I can explain that why. But and I'm from a region in South Brazil that's known for very good food. 
my favorite one is called feijoada. If you ever go there, you have to try that one. It's a, sort of a soup with black beans and pork. It tastes amazing. There's a lot of food opportunities for those who like there. And culturally, we're a very warm country. We like hugging. We like talking. If you go to someone's house, you're going to be treated as if you're in a five-star hotel better than the five-star hotel there. So I think we're a very warm country, which sort of reflects how the weather is there too, because it can get really, really warm too. And I know I was going to ask this earlier, but I'm always amazed by how many languages you speak. You've, you've spoken about an experience in Haiti where you've had to translate in French. And I'm always very curious when somebody knows so many languages, besides the obvious benefit of knowing them, what are some things that you think people who can't speak multiple languages miss out on? And what is that perspective that would encourage people to kind of learn new languages and learn new cultures? Well, that's very interesting. I, I do think that uh, speaking the language gets you closer to the local population. So you don't have to speak the perfect language as a native, but I think everyone appreciates the effort of someone going through the hardship of learning the language. Uh, as you can see, I'm not a native speaker, and I always appreciate when someone tries to speak with me in Portuguese, for example. I think learning someone else's language is a very humbling experience. I had this feeling in Haiti, as you said, I was there with another foundation. And although I don't speak French Creole, I was the only doctor who could speak French. And although they're not the same language, this made me much more approachable to the population I was caring for. I think it was a very interesting experience that I, that I had there. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Jamal. This has been a wonderful conversation with you and a new topic that I'm exploring with the podcast where we've learned so much about indigenous healthcare as well as Brazil. And of course, your unlimited talents in the global arena as well as academia. With that, I just want to wish our listeners a goodbye. I hope that you guys will look forward to more episodes where we cover these very interesting topics. And thank you, Dr. Jamal, again for inaugurating our Latin America series. Thank you for listening to Open Globe Talk. If you enjoyed this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Open Globe Talk. You can access audio recordings on our website, openglobetk.com, where we make our sessions available on Spotify, Apple, and Google. Our release dates are each Friday evening of the week we interview our guest speakers. We are incredibly appreciative of our listeners and hope to ride along to meet more inspirational figures in global ophthalmology. Thanks and take care.